Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn how to create and sustain intimate relationships that stand the test of time. My first guests are Dr. Harville Hendricks and Dr. Helen LaKelly Hunt. Let's join that conversation. When you think about what you want out of your life, most of us will say, we just want good love. We want to be happy. We want to be seen and heard and understood. And I think that's what rules most of us. But learning how to get the love that we want is the challenge. And I have the greatest honor of having Harville Hendricks and Helen LaKelly Hunt in the house today to talk about their book that I read many moons ago. And I'm so glad that um, it is being publicized and, and brought to life again, and that is Getting the Love You Want, How to Experience More Dissatisfying Relationships and Build a Lasting Source of Comfort and Intimacy with Your Partner. Good morning, Helen and Harville. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. Good morning, Lisa. We're happy to be here. Hi, Lisa. Hi. Well, let's talk, give, give our listeners a little bit of history because your work has been around for decades, I'm proud to say. You are, are the co-creators of Imago Relationship Therapy, which is a unique healing process for couples, prospective couples, and parents. Talk about Imago, your, your years together as, as a couple and, and business partners. Well, that, that'll be fun. Yeah. Um, I, our uh, years together uh, actually began in 1977 when we both met at a party that neither one of us wanted to go to, but were sort of in, encouraged to go there by our friends. And we left uh, with um, a, a, I don't quite know what the thing was, but we left knowing we were going to talk again and meet again. And we did. <clears throat> and we began a conversation about relationships because we were both divorced, wondering why and how could good people like us have a divorce and stuff like that. And that led to the research on why do couples fight that led to the book Getting the Love You Want, which was published first in 1988. And we began this conversation. We've been pillow, pillow partner talk. We've been a manuscript creator. Uh, book writers um, and and workshop leaders uh, couldn't have happened without Helen. It's purely a co-creation of all these years of bringing stuff together. And Helen wants to say something. Um, yeah, my version that I would add is just that um, that that, that, at, this, that at this party, uh, I was a single parent. I was divorced <laughs> and really sad. And someone told me, 
Harville Hendricks was in the other room and that he taught psychology and religion um, at, at the seminary, which I knew at, at, at the university here in Dallas. And I made a beeline into the other room. Oh, and they said, he's divorced now. And you might want to meet him. So I made a beeline and introduced myself and tried to get him to ask me out. And he did. And then on dates, when he told me um, uh, what he'd like to do with his life, I proposed. Boom. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, she told me not to propose to her. Well, but uh, she was going to do the proposal if we ever had one. (laughs) <laughs> well, I said that to every guy I dated. So I waited five oh, okay. years. Oh, that's, yeah, that's a little TMI. But anyway, <laughs> or maybe, I mean, it's fun for us, but don't want to want to be sensitive to your audience. But yeah, I just, I was so in awe of his vision, and I've been so thrilled to be his partner. Oh, that that warms my heart, because you look at couples who have been together for several decades, and you ask them about that spark, about that connection, and what it is that keeps the pilot light ignited. And yeah. there it is. <laughs> yes, it's... Um... Well, well, no, that's not it. <laughs> oh, tell us more. <laughs> No, that that was that was yeah. the lighting of the pilot light, but that didn't mean we didn't the flame didn't get extinguished. So yeah. basically, uh, while I was excited about dating him and also so excited about the book, we fought all the time, and so we fought, 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 and I just you know we both wondered, ooh, what would it be like to be married? We fight all the time, and so um, long story short. We, I did propose, the book got written, um, and it was so exciting, but we kept fighting. Uh, and so we really went through the valley of the shadow, like a lot of couples, even talking to divorce lawyers. And the good news is we're, I had the marriage of my dreams. We are the poster child for the dream can come back. You, the, mm. flo- the pilot light, the flame can be reignited. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, we had, I would say, 20 years of struggle uh, that almost led to a divorce. And then uh, we began to apply. And that was during the time the book had been written, had been on the bestseller list. Oprah had published it and we were well known in the world. Uh, But we were really not practicing what we had written about and uh, and did with couples, uh, which is kind of a lesson in itself. You know, you can know it, but not if you don't do it, you don't really know it. So we began to practice and a bunch of things we could say about that. But ultimately, the practice led to a, a reconciliation, to a recommitment, to a new marriage. Uh, was it 2000, the New Year's Eve 1999, uh, we had a, a recommitment party. So we began the uh, 2000 with a, with a new marriage. And we've been going uh, really well ever since uh, because we stay in the practice of the process. Well, and Harville keeps growing the theory. He's the theoretician, and um, and it's brilliant. And we added new things to the theory, and that's why there's a new addition. And, um, and uh, in addition to him deepening and expanding the theory, what he does is also simplify it. So he can say very simply, and I can say very simply, what it takes to keep the flame flaming and warming and uh, lighting the relationship and lighting the world. Enlighten us, because we all want 
we all want love and and some of us do have zero uh skill set in knowing how to create it and keep it well i think that there are about three important things to say about uh, keeping love alive to use sort of well-worn phrase and <clears throat> one of them is that uh you have to learn how to talk uh, i think this was uh, the uh primary discovery uh, uh, in the clinic, working with couples, is that the way they talk to each other uh, made it impossible for um, them to solve their problems. So somewhere way back now, we don't quite know, but a couple of decades ago, we created a structured conversation called Dialogue, which had three steps. Um, and the steps uh, uh, walked people uh, into their topic, uh, but with uh, highly structured guidance from the therapist. And the couples talked to each other. And what we discovered is that when we had that structure, which was a mirroring, talking and mirroring, talking and validating, talking and expressing empathy process, people, we finally figured out uh, from the research that what that did was help couples feel safe. Very simple thing. They felt safe. It regulated their amygdala and their prefrontal cortex. So the prefrontal cortex began to work uh, more than the amygdala did. So mm. that fear, fear, some thinking and intention could take over instead of being driven by fear and therefore anger, anger or anxiety. So when you got uh, became safe, then we discovered that couples could actually connect. Um, and because when they were safe, they dropped their defenses. They weren't into um, uh, being polarizing, being uh, argumentative or uh, competing or trying to be in control. Uh, they became vulnerable and engaging with each other. We call that the connecting process where you feel like you're with a friend. And when you're connecting, um, then you become partners in the project of making your marriage the marriage you want. But up until that, you're opponents, and therefore uh, you're opponents, and you don't get the marriage you want. You get the, you get your nightmare, which is <laughs> what Helen and I had for a long time until we finally were able to uh, to create safety. And I just want to underline to anybody who's listening: if your relationship isn't safe, it will never be intimate. You may have sex, you may do all kinds of things and play and go on vacations, but you'll never be intimate because your brain won't let you truly be vulnerable to each other, except maybe in episodic moments that you always remember. So the first thing is to learn how to talk, and that's to learn the dialogue process, and that's the first thing that we teach couples. We're not, I've said, began to say over 20 years ago, it doesn't matter to me what you talk about, what matters is how you talk about it. In fact, I think, Helen, you're responsible for that actual sentence. It's not what you say, but how you say it. And then uh, you may want to pick up on the, the zero negativity and the affirmation process and and, uh, and fill that in. It's the second thing to keep love alive is you have to. Um, so I, I think to first say that we have a definition of relationship, most people think it's two people interacting, and we talk about it as two people and the space between them. Uh, and people go, what? Why are you saying the space between? It's empty. It's invisible. There's nothing there. But actually, there's an energy field. 
in the space between two people. So things like the look in each other's mm -hmm. eyes or the tone of voice a couple uses when they communicate to each other, um, speaking in a succinct way rather than flooding their partner with words. There are ways to talk that uh, can create safety in the energy field between the couple. Um, and there are minor things they can do that create anxiety. And um, when there's anxiety, connecting is ruptured. Mm. But when there's safety, connecting reconnects. And, and, and the flame <laughs> no, continues glowing. And can't happen unless you're safe. <laughs> And it really, uh, uh, there's a long story we won't go into, but Harville is the one that really um, was interested in his and my practicing having zero negativity in the space between, seeing if we could communicate without making each other feel anxious. And we got a calendar and charted it every night to see if we could succeed at having one day with one of us um, well, with both of us feeling safe with each other throughout that day. And it was really hard. It was sort of like a research on our own selves that, boy, we kept blowing it with each other. <laughs> <laughs> and we, you know, not only have, have um, read all the relationship books out there, we've written a couple. And we couldn't do it. We just couldn't do it. We couldn't go to bed saying, today I felt safe in your presence. Wow. Yeah, from the from the experts, no doubt. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was a big wow to us. We had no idea. Like for my for my end, Lisa, like I wasn't ever being negative. I was just trying to improve Harville. I, I have little things that if he did a little bit better, <laughs> would make his life work. I had no idea <clears throat> that my great advice landed negatively on him. Oh my goodness! I now. Ask Harville questions. I wonder about Harville. I let other people try to improve him. If there is any improving needed, I stop trying to improve Harville. And I have a better relationship. And uh, Harville learns some things. And But anyway, a couple can experience a lot of wonder if they practice zero ne negativity together. So I got better after you stopped trying to improve me. Much better. Poor <laughs> counterintuitive right you know we want we want to 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 fix and bend and 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 um need someone into some something better when when we step away they they do it just fine on their own if given uh, the opportunity well what what we the way we language that is that uh, negativity or criticism of any kind it basically annihilates your partner because it says you are not the person that you could be or should be or that I want you to be, you have to be somebody else. And everybody, uh, even if they don't consciously um, uh, feel that annihilation, I mean, if, even if they don't think that that's annihilating to me, they experience annihilation. And so consequently, they're going to do one of two things. They're going to come back with a roar and say, you, you know, you can't get rid of me and I'm not going to do all that or they go away and don't protest but they're gone either way the relationship is ruptured 
So we now have a pretty strict thing that if you want to, the relationship of your dreams, um, you must go zero negativity. And there's a process, even a pledge that people sign, and we help them understand what it is and how to do it on a, on a daily basis. Then the third thing that makes keeps love alive is sort of like a garden. You have to water it, and we call it the affirmation process. And that is that instead of putting your partner down, you put your partner up yeah. and you mm -hmm. say um, that, uh, hey, that was really good. Thank you for bringing me that cup of coffee. I love the warm look in your eye. You are such an amazing person. Uh, wow. Um, you know, you do all kinds of affirming the being of the other as OK as it is. And when the other is affirmed and not negated, and talk to in such a way that you can connect, you then uh, free the neurochemistry of the brain to uh, produce uh, endorphins and dopamine so that you have a support in your body for what's happening in your behavior, which is influencing what's going on emotionally. So we say that's the formula. Learn how to talk uh, so your partner will listen and to listen so your partner will talk is zero negativity and affirmation and you will build a relationship with your dreams because it'll be safe you'll experience connecting and joyful aliveness let's jump let's off to that break and when we come back we'll continue the conversation with harville Hendricks and helen lakelly hunt we're talking about the new edition of getting the love you want how to experience more satisfying relationships and build a lasting source of comfort and intimacy with your partner to learn more, please visit HarvilleAndHelen.com. On Twitter, you can connect with them at uh, Harville Helen and at Harville Hendricks. On Facebook, that page is Harville and Helen. Here comes the break. We'll be right back, and that's a promise. Hang on. Before we take that pause, I want to talk about something that's super important. Around here, we advocate for emotional fitness training because it helps us cope better today when the future is unknown, plain and simple. If you've been struggling with adapting to the new normal, know you are not alone. Many of us are dealing with the challenges of uncertainty and change. We humans love feeling like life is under control, and right now, so many things feel outside of our control, leaving us feeling pretty stressed. People are anxious, our daily routines have been disrupted, and future plans are in flux. But stress and anxiety do not need to rule your life. My stress and anxiety management routine includes exercise, nature bathing, and meditation. And most importantly, I also take the time to speak with a therapist to help bolster my emotional well-being so I can continue to effectively and professionally serve others in maintaining theirs. And that's why I'm proud to be partnered with Talkspace Online Therapy. Talkspace is a secure therapeutic network that provides a virtual space to talk it out with a licensed therapist from the comfort, privacy, and convenience of wherever you are, whenever, and for whatever is on your mind. Talkspace has thousands of licensed therapists trained in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, relationship issues, and more. If you have something specific you want to work on, they will find someone that's right for you. Everyone deserves support, and none of us has to struggle alone. Your Talkspace therapist can be your dedicated support system, there to help you feel healthier and more empowered, even in uncertain times like these. 
The bottom line is that we all need to talk sometimes, and Talkspace wants to give more of the support we deserve at a price we can afford. As a listener of this podcast, you can get $100 off your first month on Talkspace. To match with your perfect therapist, go to Talkspace.com or download the app. Make sure to use the code HAPPINESS to get $100 off your first month and show support for the show. That's Talkspace.com with the promo code HAPPINESS. Now here comes the break. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. It's when the wind blows you a kiss. And what you got, hold on to this. Welcome back to today's show. If you're just joining us now, we're talking about what it takes to create and sustain intimate relationships that stand the test of time. Let's get back to my conversation with Dr. Harville Hendricks and Dr. Helen LaKelly Hunt. So Helen and Harville, let's go back to something that you shared um, in the, the, the previous segment about your years in struggle as a couple. And I thank you for being willing to be vulnerable you know, that B word, which we'll, we'll talk about in a minute, about the struggle and, and where it led you. I had a master's in counseling psych and went halfway through, through a PhD in clinical psych, and I was very, very interested in, um, in psychology. Uh, Harville is the visionary and the theory builder and uh, clinician. But um, the book got written, and I was helping a lot behind the scenes when suddenly the Oprah studio called. He went on the show. I really wanted just his name on the cover. It, she took it to the Emmy committee, and that show won Oprah her first Emmy. So she had him on 16 times. <laughs> so the book is really famous. Well, I'm doing cartwheels in my heart. I'm so thrilled. I'm so excited all the lives this is going to touch, all these families, all these parents, and all these marriages can be saved. But our own parenting styles were very different, and problems crept in and got bigger and bigger in our home. We had a blended family, and the discrepancy of how people imagined we related and what it was really like was so great. So I uh, asked Harville if we could go to therapist till we could find a good one. After the fifth one, we kept firing them because we were <laughs> we were smarter than them. And um, the fifth one fired us and called us the couple from hell. And it was really, really tragic that um, we went to divorce lawyers and announced that to our families and to the Imago community. And that's when her, there, a couple things happened. And eventually we thought, you know, we think we can keep this together. And we do have the relationship of our dreams now, but you have to learn to be able to talk about the tension or the differences that are there. And Imago therapy does teach you how to do that. That uh, in retrospect, we're glad, believe it or not, I'm sort of glad that this all happened because so many couples are moved by our V, our vulnerability. Yes. <laughs> they tell yes. us that, you know, because you all struggled, it makes us know that our excuse that Harville and Helen 
are compatible, so it works with them, but it doesn't work in my relationship. They can't say that. It really was hard for us to do it, too. But anyone who does this process can have the marriage of their dreams. They can have a transformation. I just want to add something about um, the Imago therapeutic process and the practitioners that you have worldwide. That the, the book, Getting the Love You Want, has been translated into more than 50 languages. And there are more than 2,000 therapists worldwide trained in the Imago process. So this is not, this is not a fly-by-night operation. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I haven't heard it said like that before. <laughs> <laughs> but, right, but right. That's certain. That's certainly true. Yeah, we I, have I a think, family yeah. of amago therapists in fifty-three countries yeah. all around the world. Yeah, 50, 53 uh, pra- practicing, practicing in fifty-three countries, and we have uh, also thirty people on our faculty who are training therapists all over the world to do imago couples therapy. So, uh, and that's been going on now for about 25, 25 years. <clears throat> so, it, right, it's not a fly-by-night. And we are we're hoping to be around uh, forever uh, because couples uh, need uh, and want uh, and want to be helped. And I'd like to, if I could add and embellish something you said, Helen, about our stuff and to, to go to the theory. I think that what finally got clear to us uh, and, and we've been struggling with a bunch of our colleagues write books on how to fight fair and fighting fair and how to have a good fight and all that sort of stuff. And I think we've had a problem with that because we have figured out how basically you don't have to fight. Uh, You will always have tension. And the tension is because you're always going to be different because there's no other way we can be except different. But the tension can be uh, be a kind of what is the phrase we use conflict There's growth trying to happen. The tension can you don't have to be in conflict about the tension the tension can be conducive to collaboration and requiring collaboration and it may not always feel good uh so that it's not like cotton candy uh but it doesn't have to be polarizing and rupturing the relationship the tension in fact produces growth if you hold the tension uh without uh without going into disconnection so i think helen and i pretty much got difference down. I mean, we can have a difference and it can be pretty intense, but it never turns into a fight. Uh, that certainly nothing like the old days when, when fighting was about all we did because, uh, tension and I mean, because difference was um, so objectionable uh, for such a long time. So it's, um, it's uh, important to know that the tension is not going to go away because of the fact of difference, but conflict, doesn't have to exist because if you hold the difference, you grow into new parts of yourself and you grow a new part of your relationship and you become more creative on the outcomes of any problems you're dealing with. I want to um, tap into something you said about safety. Um, Because when we feel unsafe, much of the time that feeling is coming from something that is not real and present, but a feeling that is arising because it makes us feel like something in the past. I guess where I'm going is, is you know, that if we're unwilling to look at our families of origin and childhood trauma, it's pretty hard to have this holistic, safe, connected relationship that you speak of. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> it is. And and the so the the, the safety actually... 
comes from two sub, from two and the fear that requires us to work towards safety uh, comes we think from two sources and one is the natural uh, human um, uh, the, the the natural fact that human beings uh, are different that the world presents itself uniquely to every human being but every human being believes that the world that they are experiencing uh, is the is the world that is <clears throat> that is the real world that's the true world and so that the um, the conflict is about my world your world like one of mine and Helen's uh, tensions is how what will the temperature in this room be <laughs> right. and, and will it be at 70 it's about 71 which is good for me or will it be about 74 which is good for Helen so is the room cold or hot well it depends on who's shivering and who's sweating uh, because perspective and experience are always different and that's a sort of prosaic way and everybody can identify with that but if you put that and magnify that to the whole human situation, everybody everywhere experiences the other person's reality as different from mine and therefore a threat to mine. That is, which reality is the one that's going to rule the roost? Right. And I'll just mention all I needed was to put on extra clothes. You know, <laughs> I, I'm, yeah, duh. I mean, we don't. Yeah, it's sort of it's so back to it's not. Um, necessarily what we're discussing it's how we're discussing it's it and making sure we're discussing things from the upper brain where you can collaborate and make win-wins I now love my three layers of flannel and, and your <laughs> and your and your electric blanket yeah, yeah so, great. I'm, I'm acing a, it but anyway so um, the tension produced creative outcomes <laughs> so that I'm I can sleep under one sheet and she sleeps under well electric blanket but in the same bed so yeah. it, it, that's just, a, again, a prosaic thing. But the second source of the problematic is that <clears throat> that inability, we think, the inability to really see and accept difference as okay comes from our childhood background in which when we, uh, when we were little and in our parents' arms, <clears throat> uh, we were being shaped by the sensitivity the attunement that they had to our needs and we were recording them as they were interacting with us and creating in the uh, in our amygdala an emotional memory of our parents uh, and of our reaction interaction with our parents and in our uh, uh, later on uh, that's that's uh, from the beginning of life in the in the amygdala which is the fear center of the brain then later on in the hippocampus, we begin to record the events, actual events. But that's at about age three or four that we can record events. Prior to that, you can only record emotions. So, but these um, emotions and these these recordings have uh, two uh, subjects. One is, what are they doing that makes me feel safe and alive? And what are they doing or not doing that makes me feel scared as if I'm not going to survive so the yeah. baby's basically calibrating that all the time and making a picture of it and here's the fact what makes this interesting is that template that movie uh they we run all of us run in adulthood when we're looking for our intimate life partner 
and the movie, we're looking at the world through the movie, through the template, through the filter, uh, for somebody who uh, is similar to the caretakers who did not meet our needs. And when we see that person, uh, <clears throat> our unconscious mind, we have two layers of perception. Our unconscious perception will see this person is similar to the caretakers, triggers memories, not in our conscious awareness, but we just, in our conscious awareness, we're just excited. And we move across a crowded room towards this amazing person. But underneath that, there's a, 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 a uh, an expectation being set up. This person is like mommy and daddy. From them, I can get my needs met. So when that happens, you fall in love. And then you move toward establishing a connection and a relationship with that person in your unconscious mind so that you can get the needs met from a person in adulthood that were not met in childhood. But this person is similar in adulthood to the person in childhood who did not meet your needs. So because you selected them, we select we select that person. So we're, we're we're attracted to it. We're attracted to it. We select it unconsciously. We do not. We wouldn't. If we knew what we were doing, we wouldn't do it. So this is, I think, <laughs> ever who made up the world, made up human beings, knew that the person we need to be with is not somebody we would choose if we knew who they were. Uh, you would not. You would not pick a person like your cold father and your uh, invasive mother. Uh, but that's the only kind of person you really are attracted to at the unconscious level, because those are the people who frustrated you in childhood, and you have to get what you didn't get um, from a person similar to the one from whom you didn't get it, but from whom it should have come. That seems to be the way the brain sets it up. So obviously you're going to go into conflict about that because that person that you've fallen in love with is going to respond to you like your caretakers did. They're yeah. going to meet the need. And you're going to respond to them like their caretakers did. You're not going to meet their needs. So you're going to go into a real serious impasse. And this is where it's really important that couples know that the big problem in their relationship, the big impasse, is not a function of their own adult will. It's the collision at the unconscious level of two competing need systems, both of which are seeking to be satisfied in a relationship in which neither one has the capacity to do it. So they have to know what it is and then grow that capacity so that the, con that the problem your partner has with you is an opportunity for you to grow a part of yourself that you would never grow without that partner's needs. But turns out that's a part that got shut down in childhood by your parents. So you were unwhole and your your partner wants the part of you like like let's say we all grew up with two arms, but your parents in childhood shut down one of them, but you'll marry somebody who wants both arms. Yeah. And then they will say, I want the other arm. And you say, Well, I only have one arm. And they say, well, I, I think you can do it. I think you can hug me. I think you, you can do whatever. And if you stay with it instead of saying, no way in hell, I don't do windows. If you stay with it and say, I will learn to be that. I'll learn to do that. You'll discover you're activating an undeveloped part of yourself, which is your full potential that got shut down in childhood. So your partner's needs calls you into your own wholeness. So this is what makes the tension between opposites growth producing for both persons, if they will stay in the process 
and use a relational technology to make it happen. You can't just do it, just keep trying, slugging away. You really have to know how to do it. And the relational sciences are now well enough developed that we now know how to help couples move out of that impasse into a, a conscious partnership with some speed. And to learn how to do it, it, I think people need to get the book, Getting the Love You Want, How to Experience More Satisfying Relationships and Build a Lasting Source of Comfort and Intimacy with Your Partner. So if you're having a hard time with your loved one and you want to learn how to communicate better, create a safer zone within the relationship and increase intimacy, I highly recommend the book. I, I ha have read it years ago and I'm rereading it now and I've had the great pleasure of hosting Harville Hendricks and Helen LaKelly Hunt in the house. Will you come back and, and do more with me? Because we there's so much more we can explore together. Would love to. It would be an honor. Absolutely. Here comes that pause and we will return. That's my pledge to you. Did you know that Harvesting Happiness travels? Lisa delivers unique on-site mental fitness programming at corporations, universities, and organizations around the world that boosts morale creates positive change, and improves well-being. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to connect and learn more. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we are continuing our conversation about what it takes to create and sustain intimate relationships that stand the test of time. My next guest is Dr. Gary Salyer. Today, we're continuing that conversation about love, 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 the secret sauce to everything. My next guest is Dr. Gary D. Salyer. He is the author of Safe to Love Again, How to Release the Pain of Past Relationships and Create the Love You Deserve. Dr. Gary is a relationship expert, mentor, and speaker. For more than a decade, he has been helping people rewrite the rules of love in their brains. Using the science of intimate relationships, Gary guides singles and couples to claim a lasting soulmate relationship. And who doesn't want that? Gary, thanks for joining us on the show. And I'm happy to be here, Lisa. I, I, I am super happy that you're here. Let's talk about the inspiration for writing this book, because you grew up in circumstances that sound like they were challenging. Oh, yeah, they were challenging. Uh, I grew up in a family that for seven generations, nobody graduated high school, a lot of alcoholism. And my mother had personal, uh, uh, borderline personality disorder. Most people were divorced and miserable. And I can still remember at seven saying, I don't want to be like this. So when I went to college, uh, I enrolled in a psychology degree uh, and religion, thinking surely this will give me all the answers, double major. Uh, in my senior year, a professor says, come on in here in the psych department. We want to give you a test. And the test results came back. And at the very end, he just says, no, by the way, uh, you have a 90% chance of being divorced. And I was like floored. So I literally suspended graduating that year and went and did a fifth year of college focusing on marriage and family relations. And I said, boy, I'm not going to have that happen to me. So 12 years later, I'm getting a divorce. I'm going, what happened? I don't understand. I did all the study. I do another seven years of therapy and a bunch of workshops, and, the, and I get married again, pronounce myself all fit and ready. And four years <laughs> later, there I am again. And this time, I'm looking at life. 
And then after a series of painful relationships where I began to realize I had become Mr. Wrong, there wasn't just them, that was, I said, therapy's done me some good, done me a lot of good, but it never changed my core style of relating. It had me managing pain versus creating a different experience in love. And I said, if they can't crack it, then I will. And I dedicated myself to cracking the code to what rewires our brains. So we think and feel just like those good people that have lasting, wonderful relationships that you see holding hands after 20 years in a restaurant where they're gazing in each other's eyes waiting for the, for the food to be served. I, I love this story <laughs> because not only are you coming from an academic perspective, but you're also like your, your uh, lab rat, you're your own, you know, where you're testing these principles on yourself and you have gotten it right. I'm, I'm happy to report. I have been my own guinea pig. That is absolutely true. And it was good because when I would read stuff, especially in the research, I really began to have a feel, okay, this is going to work. No, not, not really. And I began to trust my guts. And then I began to see what really worked with clients. And over 10 years, I got a pretty good idea that uh, this new theory I've been talking about, that there's four feelings that tell your brain you're loving. If you can give and take them, all four of them, you're pretty good to go. And if you're not wired to give and take them, things always go astray. Let's talk about our love style as humans and where does it come from? Well, usually early childhood. That doesn't mean that later experience, like maybe a traumatic event later on in high school or perhaps uh, a really bad relationship that we accidentally got fooled into, but it's usually the first three to seven years. And what I argue in the book is that in those first few years, by the time a, a child is one year old, we know from attachment theory that you can tell by the way they are separated from a parent and how they return to the reunion with them, you can tell whether they are wired in a secure way, which means they don't get too amped up, and they eventually grow up to pick really good partners, and they create lasting relationships. They're called secure. There's two other types of babies, one years old now. And these babies are either anxious, they're waiting for when love does go away, and they grew up to be drama kings and queens, or they're the, uh, the avoidance, and they have a flight response. They're afraid of depending on love or being dependent upon. And they grow up to be Mr. You know, or Ms. No Commitment or uh, the unavailable mate. So what tells that baby at one to be secure was what I focused on. Because at that time, there's no beliefs. There's no stories. There's not even much conscious memory. All that's running is feeling. And what tells that baby tells you because your brain is wired from early on to look for, have I been welcomed with joy? Have I been made worthy and nourished to reach out for my needs? Do I feel cherished and protected? And do I feel empowered with choice? If you're feeling welcomed and worthy and cherished and empowered in a relationship, I'll bet you're feeling pretty good about it. If one is missing, you're thinking, yeah, there's a few things to work on. Two, you're saying, what's the number for my therapist, best friend, right? And, you know, and three or four, you're in a toxic relationship. So the point is to focus on what really tells your brain you're loved versus other things that get in our way. You talk about six rights or permissions in the book, mm -hmm. Safe to Love Again. Share them with us. Okay. So, yes, the way these feelings, the feelings actually create rights. You can think of them as permission slips to have certain experiences or not. 
when a, a baby is first welcomed into the world when they're first born, oh, there you are, little Lisa. Oh, so glad to have you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that gives you the feeling of welcome with joy. And when you feel welcome with joy, you have a pretty good right to to exist, as I call it, to be in your body, to be connected. It feels good being in the world, in your world, in the body. The second, now, the second right is, you know, it usually comes along as we feed our babies, when the baby is allowed to reach out to signal it has a need, and the, there's an attuned response back. So you reach out for your needs, and you feel worthy to have your needs met. So that second feeling worthy gives you a right to reach out for your needs and to give and take in a balanced way. The third right is what I call right to separate and belong. This is when the toddler starts crawling and goes, oh, my God, that's mom over there. And I'm over here. I'm separate. I get to be a me. So it's all about I get to be a me within an empowering, supportive, cherishing we. It's not just a me or just a we so I feel invaded. It's a, a balanced Goldilocks zone. I get to be a me inside a we. And as adults, that means we get to have some support, you know, a safety net under the higher wire act of our, the aspirations of our lives and our dreams. Then there's two rights that come in around two, and that's a right to create your own experience and a right to assert. This comes from the feeling of empowered with choice. A right to create your own experience is I don't have to let someone else be the standard, and I'm good with all of me, good and bad, weak and strong. Right to assert is just that. I can have a voice. I can have choice. I can choose what I want. And someone will acknowledge that. And if you have all of those rights, those five rights that give you four feelings of welcome, worthy, cherished, and empowered, then you have a full right to love and be loved, not one or the other. So these six rights, right to exist, right to have your needs met, right to separate and belong, create your own experience, right to assert and a right to love and be loved give you these four feelings and that's the heart and soul of what tells how brains that are secure are wired and if any of those are missing then you go anxious or avoidant so the trick is how do i give myself back a feeling of worthy and nourished if i don't have a, and a right to reach out if that's missing or a right to feel empowered if uh if i don't have a right to create my experience this gives you the formula so you uh, so you know your way back. And what's interesting is many of us are, <clears throat> are challenged in this area. We have perfectly decent parents who take care of us and nurture us to the best of their ability. However, when it comes to this um, deeper material, um, there, there are challenges. There are. And, you know, sometimes you can have well, well-meaning parents. Uh, in the book, I talk about Carolyn. Carolyn was born to a world-class family. Everybody's secure, three older brothers that are all, uh, and sisters that are all you know, securely wired. But when her mother, who's a world-class mother, was about two, six weeks old, I think it was, she was in a wicked car accident, was in traction in a hospital for 10 months with everything broken. And so she could not adequately respond her child. The family did as good as possible with makeshift aunts and everybody, but it wasn't the same doting, responsive. That the, and she kept asking, why? Why am I so anxious? Nobody else is. It's because during the crucial period, she didn't get all the momentary attunements that everybody else did. 
And at, and so it was resetting some of that word basically for her, right, to have her needs met. And so you can get it naturally. Everybody does. At some point in time, your brain takes the best deal. Not everybody gets uh, a missing set of rights uh, from bad parents. Occasionally, stuff happens. Yeah. I love what you said, that the, take, the brain takes the best deal. That's right. Right? Like, so, okay, this, this, this will do. This is okay. This seems to, you know, be right or feel good enough. Well, for instance, I grew up in, in, in um, um, with a borderline mother who had some violent tendencies. I had a lot of right to separate and not as much right to belong. I didn't, I wasn't very good at creating a we, and that really played into two of my, those two divorces. Now, when you're with a borderline mother who can who is who can get very physically violent, do you want to belong? No. We, you know, me and being separate is the best deal available. Your that's brain, safety. Right? Safety. That's yeah. And it's and it was in giving my brain a right to belong, to making it safe to belong again, right? That was the winning ticket for me. Some part was always pulling me out of relationships because at one time that was the best deal available. So no matter what your pattern is out there, if you're listening to this, no part of you is wrong. Some part just took the best deal available. We like that part. It's been working for 20, 30, 40, 50 years to keep you sane and on the planet. It's done a good job. We just want to give it a different security memo. And when we talk about a, a borderline mother or a borderline parent, describe for the listeners what some of those features are. <laughs> One word, duck. <laughs> uh, some of those features are uh, you you feel like you walk on eggs you never know when she's going to ignite or he uh, there's usually uh, and uh, there's the the punishment never fits the crime there's and you really have to watch for how volatile they are you're you're always going to be made wrong I remember in high school she gave me two uh, ties for Christmas and when I went out that night wearing one, she goes, you're just too hard to, to please. She goes, uh, you didn't wear the other one. I go, <laughs> I go, Mom, do you know any men that wear two ties at the same time? <laughs> but you just, there was no way to win. And there's this volatility. They're scared to death they don't belong. And there's, a, there's often violence or extreme manipulative uh, cognitive emotional behavior. And verbally explosive, if not physically explosive, right? It can be either or both. It can be either or both. My mom had the, the physical down because I think she went through a lot of abuse herself and she mm. wanted to make sure she was in the power position. But they use, but you will often feel powerless. And, you, and the, the big feeling is, are you walking on eggshells? Yeah, there's not security in one's own home. The sense that the home is, is the safe harbor. Yeah, there's no, yeah, attachment theory loves saying us, do we have a safe haven? That's And that comes with a beautiful right to separate and belong. But if you're with anybody with a personality disorder, I guarantee you separate is a better deal than belonging. You know. Yeah, yeah, I do. I, I, I hear I hear you. I hear what you're putting down. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Dr. Gary D. Salyer to learn more about his work and the book, Safe to Love Again, How to Release the Pain of Past Relationships and Create the Love You Deserve. Please visit www.garysalyer.com. On Twitter, he's at Gary D. Salyer. And on Facebook, that page is Dr. Gary D. 
Salier. Instagram, it's the same deal. And here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. It's when the wind blows you a kiss. And we are back talking about what it takes to stand the test of time in our most intimate relationships. Let's get back to the conversation with my guest, Dr. Gary Salyer. So Gary, in the previous segment, you were talking about your history, what brought you to write this book, the education, the trial by fire in your marriages to learn how to create and, and, and maintain a lasting, soulful relationship. In your book, you talk a lot about neuroplasticity and rewiring the brain um, as a way to heal and learn how to be in relationship as an adult. Yes. You know, the big thing, yes, the big thing is hopelessness. One of the things I've discovered while writing the book, I had about 40 or 50 people, uh, clients, friends who were reading it. And the feedback I caught. I kept getting was, oh my God, that thing made me feel hopeless. Uh, can you give me a little more hope? Hopelessness and I think not deserving, not feeling worthy are pretty much at epidemic proportions in this culture of ours. So a lot of attachment books have been good at saying, hey, you're anxious, you're secure, you're avoiding. Great, that in five bucks just might get you something at Starbucks. You know, but a label is not the same as saying, how do I give myself back a loving relationship? We want love, not a label. And so this book is saying, how do we restore these feelings? <clears throat> the, <clears throat> the secure baby feels welcomed, worthy, cherished, and empowered. And I spend six chapters talking about how clients and, you know, and the work that we did together found their way back to feeling worthy to feeling welcomed in the world, to feeling cherished if that was what was missing. The key point, and it's not just thinking it, you've got to do the really deep work that's not the not the stuff in the prefrontal cortex. It's not the stuff that says, hi, I'm Lisa, I'm Gary, I'm the, or whoever you are out there. It's the deep stuff in the limbic system and what's called implicit memory. Implicit memory is just a part of our memory that you can't recall, but you'll never forget. And it's resetting those feelings so you feel worthy. When people feel worthy, they pick better partners, they create better relationships and lasting. So it's the deep work. <clears throat> That's not about the story you're telling. It's the, it's the feeling that tells your brain what story to create. It's the feeling that tells your brain what limiting belief to create. So it's, and there is a way, it, you know, I didn't discuss all the ways I do it with clients. It does take deep one-on-one -on -one work with someone that knows how to reset those feelings. But if you can reset those feelings, your brain will begin to stop picking the same Mr. or Ms. wrong. Or they'll stop 
uh, creating the same debilitating argument with your sweetheart. Your brain will stop seeking. If it feels undeserving, it seeks undeserving. If it feels disempowered, it finds disempowered. And a mate, if it picks it, prods it, or 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 uh, or projects it. So the key is to get yourself feeling these. And when they become your GPS for love, everything changes. So, for example, chapter eight, uh, the commitment of that chapter um, is I will train my brain to feel more loved and loving by. And mm -hmm. give an example or a series of examples of how one would do that. Okay. One of the things I do I, to start the transformational work, I begin, I give people a series of what I call perceptual filters. If you stop and think about it, when people don't feel worthy or they don't feel loving, some part of their brain stops deleting the people and experiences that would love or make them feel worthy because it doesn't agree with their identity. Or another tricky one is they're so afraid of being disappointed again, they just start deleting any evidence they could be loved and then they say they're hopeless. It's a tricky little way. I'll delete any possibility of love so that I don't get involved and I don't get hurt again. And then people feel really hopeless. So what I do is I give them like ways I can notice that uh, I can be loved and well connected. Uh, ways I can notice it's okay to reach out for my needs. And when people and then they just read this little filter. This is just a begin the the first baby step, but it does miracles sometimes. If I told you, you know, um, like, for instance, when women get pregnant, I've been told they begin to notice every pregnant woman on the planet when they wonder where were those. They were <laughs> there, right? If you go out to buy a, a Mercedes Benz, suddenly you notice every Mercedes Benz on the planet. So the moment we start letting in new evidence, then we can allow in new feelings. And that's the first step, undeleting the things that were being deleted, <laughs> so to speak allowing in more of the loving experience that is already there. There are people who are making you feel worthy. It might be a, somebody at, uh, at Starbucks <clears throat> who gets it wrong and makes sure that, you know, you get a free something and or <clears throat> a, a favorite aunt or whoever it is or a good friend. There's always evidence for all these feelings. We just often delete them. So the first step is that. And then the second step is to work with a qualified professional who understands these rights and knows how to reset them at a very deep level. It's hard doing it by oneself. And I think that's a very interesting point about the outsourcing support and also the use of surrogates, right? That we play out this dynamic so we can trust and verify in smaller situations. Exactly. I mean, one of the things, I mean, the three things, I, if anybody wants, is that you're deserving of way more than you think you are. Hope is available, change is possible, and we do need a community. We need a, we need to be in a we. I mean, it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to restore love style. We need all the, the good things. I mean, people that give really great memes on Facebook or podcasts that talk about it. You know, you're, you know, finding a trusted therapist or coach you can work with. Your friends, secure friends, not the jaded ones. Look out and notice that there is a we available in the universe. Uh, but you've been so focusing on me and I've got to do it that we often forget, wait a minute, every day we are surrounded by a we. Right now, 
You and I are we. We are working together to, to create more for the various people we serve. We're a team at this moment. Just notice right here, Lisa, there's a we for, yeah. the, for this 25 minutes. Yeah, it's it, it, it it's healing, right? You have the, you have successful wees, these little test test scenarios. It mm-hmm. makes one feel more confident to go out in the world and say, yes, that I I am worthy of love, connection, and belonging, as Brene Brown puts it. Um, and and mm-hmm. then you seek to surround yourself m- with more relationships that offer that that sense of of connection and 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 a glow, that inner glow. Yeah, yes, I'm a part of something that is bigger than myself. I guarantee you that if it feels like you're all alone in the world and no one's going to be ever be there for you ever, ever again, that some part of you, at one time, being a we was so painful, some part just deletes it so you never go there again. And that's a tragedy. Yeah, it is. Uh, That's how real hopelessness and hopelessness, if you stop to think about it in this way, is there trying to protect you, but it's not doing a real good job of it. You know, it's kind of like, I remember one time, uh, my grandmother had flowers, uh, flower beds, and she explained to me, she said, you know, and she told me one day that these dandelions were, were weeds. And so one, and I noticed they had flowers. So I went out and I helped grandma by, by de-weeding the, the garden, except I picked everything with a bloom <laughs> because she, she had told me. This is, <laughs> and she goes, what did you guys say? Well, you said they, and I pointed to the dandelion and she, that's kind of the way our security. I'm trying to, your brain's trying to do something helpful for you. It just got the wrong security card. Now we just got to get it safe with belonging or are we or what or reaching out or having a voice, whatever was taken off. And it will always take the better deal if we can just give it the flavor of safety that your brain is looking for. And that's the key. And I think surrounding ourselves with healthy models. So say family of origin, relationships weren't good, models not good, there are attachment challenges that we create a family of choice um, as we heal that will deliver that sense of um, cr- connection or tribe in a, in a healthy fashion. It's absolutely. Can, do we have time for a really quick short story on that? We do. We need- do. We do need models. I had a great third grade teacher. I was teacher's pet. And I had a younger sister. And my sister tended to take way more after my mother. I was always saying, I want to go in the opposite direction. So my third grade teacher told me in sixth grade then when she got my sister, she goes, she thought she was getting Gary again. But she found out like early on, one day there was going to be a guest. And Mrs. Graham told my sister, um, I want you to be to the greeter day. And she goes, well, what do I do? She goes, well, when there's a knock on the door, I want you to get up, open the door and say, welcome in. Well, my now you got to remember, she, my sister was taking out way after my, my mother. So my sister, the knock comes, my sister gets up, she walks out, opens the door, says, well, come in. <laughs> not, not exactly inviting. <laughs> not exactly. And, but that's, that's role modeling. That's role modeling. Yeah. That would have been welcome in my family. That would have been a good day. <laughs> right? And what we want and the things that we know is that's why we if we can hang out with secure people, people who have loving relationships and notice what they're doing, we're way better off ahead of the game than having a if you're a man or woman out there and you've got a best friend who's really jaded and they're always saying, Oh, dump them next. That that uh, that is not secure advice. You want to hang out with people 
who that you can notice, wow, look how they responded to that. Look what they did there. Wasn't that sweet? You want to notice all those things because that's how your brain got wired at first and it's going to be how it's going to be wired now. It, your brain notices everything. And the more you're surrounded by, you know, happy people who, you know, that's really how you harvest happiness is by noticing, you know, all the all the good things that that are out there in the trees that are really giving good love to people. So to oh. Well, and if we look at emotions as positive or negative contagions, if we're surrounded by people who are negative and present these negative role models, uh, we're more apt to replicate the model. However, if we see that it's in our interest and there's a positive benefit to following that, that um, uh, healthy model, we're going to gravitate towards that. Exactly. Like, yeah, you want to, you know, and, but a lot of times we hang out with these other people because we don't have a right to a better experience. If you've never felt the feeling of, of empowered, you'll find people who disempower you because that's the only feeling you have the right for. Yeah. That's the key. This is why these rights are so important I talk about. We are always having the experience we have the rights for. So when people hang out with negative people and they feel unworthy or disempowered or, you know, then you know that the feel, the brain doesn't have the feeling, the secure feeling of really feeling worthy or really feeling empowered. It's a barometer. It's a barometer. I, I want to, um, we're almost out of time, but I want to mention something that I, I find very interesting that you, you, you lead workshops, uh, several different kinds of workshops for singles, for couples, um, for uh, safe to love again workshops. And you said that, that when singles come to the workshops, <coughs> excuse me, they're trying to figure it out, right? They might not have that good role model. And the idea that we can take these kinds of programmings and learn how to have a, a positive role model, to learn how to rewire the brain, sometimes that may be all that we need. It can be. With a little skill set and just and seeing it model can go a long way. I remember at one of my extraordinary couples, I had a I had a woman who had been through about a 26-year divorce. She was pretty jaded. She goes, I'd love to find a good man, but uh, I don't know if I've got the skills even. So she came, and I can still remember, you know, uh, her. she looked at me when she left. She goes, for the first time in my life, I know what lasting love looks like. Because wow. that's the power of just spending three days uh, in, a, in an environment where these four feelings are given very much so, and the skill set. Because I always say, okay, these are the skills couples use to get to make you welcomed with joy. These are the skills couples use to make you feel each worthy uh, or cherished. And if you have the skill sets and you have those feelings, uh, you're just going to hang out with better people, pick better partners, and, and you have the skill set to create lasting because the point of all this is everybody deserves a love that lasts. And that's my mission in the world. And it's a good one, I think. It is, um, it is the secret sauce that makes us soar, right, as, as humans. Absolutely. You know, uh, lasting is what everybody on the planet wants. And yet nothing stays the same, right? We have to wrangle with the impermanence of, of life and all things and the evolution of relationships and, and the ability to um, have some dominion over our own uh, sense of self. 
Yes, lasting doesn't mean unchanging. I learned that in, way back as an undergraduate. I remember the professor brought in a couple that were 93 years. They had been married 63 years. He was 93, she was 88. And, a, and a, a football player said, what's it like being married to the same woman for 63 years? And this guy looked him straight in the eye and said, son, if you think you're married to the same woman for 63 years, you've got it all wrong. I've been married to five women. <laughs> That's and fantastic. And, she, and he explained the, the five women he's been and how different they were. And she's just nodding. Lasting is not boring. It's not, you know, monotony. Lasting is dynamic. Lasting is you've got to be able to adapt and change. You've got to grow with each other. So, you know, let's be very clear. Lasting is about being able to realize, oh, that 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 way of meeting her needs or his needs from five years ago may not work today. It, that's what attunement is. Yes. So lasting is very much dynamic. Yeah. And it's about keeping in touch with who is my beloved today. Not last week, not, you know, but today. How do I attune? Well, we need today. We, you and me together and our guests today wish everybody good love and the discernment to know the difference. To learn more, please visit www.garysalyer.com. On Twitter, you can connect with Gary at Gary D. Salyer. And on Facebook, Dr. Gary D. Salyer. And on Instagram, it's the same deal, Dr. Gary Salyer. And there's a period between each of those words. <laughs> Gary, thank you. This was awesome. Well, thank you, Lisa, for helping me get my message out that Safe to Love Again is available as a book. And together, you and I can change the world. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests, Dr. Harville Hendricks, Dr. Helen LaKelly Hunt, and Dr. Gary Salyer wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. And oh yeah, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay joyful. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks for listening. <laughs>